The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suho 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to part two of the Duxbury Files, where historian David Duxbury and I are looking at the Curtis P-40 in RNZF service, here on the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. We pick up where the conversation left off from the last episode. Uh, just uh, looking through some other, other incidents that happened with P-40s through the, the couple of years that they were in service, and... One of them was uh, on the 20th of June 1944, there was an accidental air-to-air between two RNZF P-40s uh, at, at the Fighter Gunnery School at Gisborne. Um, the aircraft flown by squadron leader Robert Mackay, or Bob Mackay, uh, the, the t- there were two aircraft um, doing a sunny gun exercise, but unfortunately they didn't just have a sunny gun on, on board, it wasn't just a camera. It, they also had accidentally been loaded with ammunition. So, uh, yes. what, what did you say the name of the other pilot was, sir? Oh, um, my old friend Ian McKenzie. That's the one. Yes, he, Paul uh, Ian. <laughs> he, he went to make a, a mock attack on, on uh, Bob Mackay, and it turned out to be a real real attack, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, he was horrified when he's suddenly uh, the juddering and sh- well, they make a lot of noise in an aircraft when you're firing six. Well, I think you only had two fitted uh, or two loaded. Yeah. And but still, it was, he got a hell of a fright, and he said he 
I think he reckoned that only about five shells got away in total, but uh, I think about three of them hit the hit the, the, the uh, other aircraft right, and it smacked it right in the hydraulic reservoir, which was just behind somewhere behind the pilot. And of course, that's the reason they couldn't get the undercarriage down. I think. Yeah, and so uh, Bob Mackay had to do a, a wheels up landing, didn't yeah, he? And, yeah. Uh, and did, was the aircraft written off? I, can't I don't think so. No, I think it was pretty straightforward repair. Probably a new hydraulic reservoir and um, some skin repairs. But Ian thought it was good shooting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it obviously was. If there's only only five rounds fired, and he managed to About two or know, three of them hit. Yeah. Yeah, and um, and also uh, quite interestingly and, and and quite funny is that the aircraft that uh, Ian was flying NZ three one four seven got a little New Zealand flags uh, painted on it as a. There's always a comedian uh, around somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and speaking of as a score. score. <laughs> speaking of comedians, poor old old Ian. He was asked uh, uh, a few a short while after that incident. Anyway, as I said, it went all around New Zealand within the Air Force, of course. Um, old uh, Bob Mackay had to go down, I think it was to Wellington. It could be wrong. Um, it doesn't really matter where it was, but anyway, he was it was for some sort of conference or talk about something, and he took Ian along just as a bit of an interesting experience. I'm not sure, I presume that whether this was still when the, uh, well, that gunnery course was going on, because of course Ian was actually taking a, a pupil in that gunnery course. Bob, Bob uh, Mackay was one of the instructors, and uh, Anyway, I took Ian along. It, it may have been, yeah, it was probably before, probably while the course was still on. But they went down somewhere in the harbour, well, I think it was Wellington, but it could have been Woodburn, to, to meet somebody and talk about something. And, uh, and of course, well, they got out of this, their uh, harbour and walking across to wherever these people were there to meet. And uh, apparently, somebody called out, Hey, Bob, he says, Who is the idiot that shot you down? And uh, <laughs> apparently, Bob never said a word. He just sort of put his thumb over his shoulder and pointed at him. <laughs> <laughs> Ian thought that was a bit mean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it wasn't his fault. It was really the well, armourer's fault. Said, wasn't Ian it? was the most uh, surprised person in the, in the in the air force when he when the he pressed this gut, button that was supposed to start his camera and the bloody guns went off. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Poor old Ian. He never lived that one down. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I dare say that sort of thing probably happened uh, a fair few times overseas, but I, I think it's the only time in New Zealand where. There was, there was a case, of course, in the 50s where a, one of our um, vampires just about shot down one of our P-51 drogue tires. Oh, right. They was hit, hit it with its 20mm shells, too. Oh, wow. Gosh. I, I have an idea that, that P-51 never flew again. It was, it was in 54 or 55, I think. Might have been, yeah, maybe in 55. But there was a bit of an investigation into that one, too. Oh, right. Actually, I, I remember, too... Um my old mate Trevor Pierce saying that uh, he was given the job of flying the the drogue towing wildebeest at Ardmore. Uh, uh, he was on 17 Squadron with the Corsairs, and uh, one of his fellow squadron mates was firing at the drogue, but missed the drogue, and the and the rounds were coming through the the wildebeest between him and the guy in the back. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> no, no. I've actually tried to find an AP on on. Um air firing, but only ones I've found so far have been the APs for um, towed targets and drogues. Okay. Uh, most of them were post-war versions, but they obviously there were other publications about the actual exercises, you know, the um, 
procedures for air firing and, and what had to be done and you know the tipping of the bullet heads and paint and all this sort of stuff and, and the exact procedures to be followed to prevent people being killed. Yep. Which is always on the cards if you know bullets are flying and aircraft are in fairly close proximity. I thought there might even be something on firing at ground targets, but I haven't found that one either. But I'll have to look harder, I guess. So um, I think you've done a little bit of looking into the aerial collisions between P40s. Oh, we did, didn't we? Yes, that was. Yeah. Um, yeah, people do notice that when they see a list of P40 losses and think, they think, crikey, there's a few of them that cleaned up in aerial collisions. What's the, what's the problem with P40s? And I think, well, when you look at it overall, you know, they throughout the war they lost, what did I say, 30, 30 aircraft destroyed yeah. in aerial collisions, uh, not in collisions, most yeah. of which were aerial, but there were, I think, about five or six might have been on the ground, which is not unusual. Water yeah. flying, yeah. you know, tiger moths, we were into tiger moths because they didn't see the other one until the last moment. But the aerial ones are quite interesting. Uh, I've never really made a great assessment of them, but. Um, Looking into it, it it's, it's because most of these collisions would, well, a few of them were actually squadron aircraft, including, I think there are about five in the Pacific, five, four or five in the 40 years in the Pacific in the aerial collisions, um, yep. often on uh, escort missions. I, I remember one of them was a friend of ours, um, oh, what was his name? Keith Mulligan. Ah, right. Mulligan here, he um, he had a collision on operations. Um, of course, the P P forties. Most most fighters they tried to they tried to give the pilot a reasonable good look, you know, view all around. But uh, particularly the ones that they designed in the late thirties, often they weren't quite as good as the later ones in World War Two. They um, the canopies often were um, in framing in them. You know, you think of the Hawker Hurricane; they had plenty of framing in, in the mission. Yeah. 109. Uh, often they were quite close fitting, and they, they were, the structure of the fuselage was built up behind the cockpit. And sometimes there was a bit of provisions that you could sort of peek around the corner a bit, like on P40s. But they weren't that great for rear view. And uh, of course, they did try fitting mirrors and things above the, the windscreen. Sometimes they had twin mirrors, and mirrors inside and mirrors outside. Uh, and all these helped, but um, when you compare them with the late real-time fighters with the big, beautiful, clear, crystal clear uh, bubble hoods, you know, they were, and they could even look under the tailplane from out of those if the neck, yes. if the neck would turn that far around, <laughs> the body. Yeah. But yeah, they they certainly had, and of course, looking ahead too on a, on a fighter aircraft, often you you can see head straight straight ahead well enough, but you can't see through the engine, which is just below that. And there were cases of um, a lot. Of, in fact, a lot of the the losses that we talk about, the ones uh, in New Zealand, were at OTUs. Probably about two thirds of them, if not more. And frequently, you'd think they were teaching them to fly in formation in a high-performance aircraft, where the visibility is possibly a bit less than a Tiger Moth. And they have to change for positions in formation sometimes, or the, or somebody might be late and have to catch up. And there's always, of course, in those aircraft, you can't put the brakes on if you come sliding in too fast. <clears throat> you haven't got any. Um, you can yeah. put the flaps down, but that might get you into more trouble. Yes. And uh, a lot of it just seemed to be people getting out of position and, and dropping out of sight of somebody, and they come up underneath them and 
yeah, there were a lot of the cases of collisions. In fact, I, th I think I remember the one where with Keith Mulligan, where he um, said, I think he suddenly be uh, became aware of his aircraft. Suddenly, there was some terrible crashing from behind, and it was actual. The aircraft was uh, probably above him, actually, because he never saw it. He yeah. wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be looking in his mirror. <laughs> Uh, and of course, there was the other fellow's propeller cutting through his tail, and um, of course, the whole aircraft went out of control and he had to bail out. I have an idea. Hmm, actually, thinking about it, it, probably was the one in the, the one that was killed was in the front aircraft. That's right, because right, I think I think Keith Mulligan did, did actually. His, I think his aircraft glided off, but um, he, he bailed out of it and landed in, the, in some terrible jungly spot on Bougainville. But um, the other one oh, went straight right. in, so it's more likely he was the one that had his tail chopped off, I'd say. Yes. But yeah. I have read of other ones where they were hit from behind, and it was the, the whole aircraft was shaking and banging and crashing, and, the, and, the, and there's this monster propeller carving into you. Pretty, pretty nasty. Would be nasty, and, yeah. and it was just about all cases, it seemed like people just lost track of people on either side or the one behind them, um, or changing form, formations and coming in too fast. And the reason you don't, I mean, there were collisions with Corsairs too, but not nearly as many as with um, the P-40s. And I think the reason was that the P-40s was used right through the war as a fighter trainer, and the Corsairs are usually only flown by pilots that had done quite a bit of flying on P-40s. Right. And, and the, the Corsair probably had a bit better visibility. It was a higher cockpit with um, you know, more bold sides. You had a bit more of a commanding position, and they still, they, they still had collisions. Yeah, still made the yeah. same mistakes, but they're probably a lot wiser to it by the time they got the courses, and perhaps the uh, instructors are more tougher on them, you know, not losing sight of the other people in the formation or not getting disorientated. And I think it was just the fact that, yeah, as I said, the pilots in these P-40s were probably less experienced pilots particularly in the early days, and even during the war, they, you went from Harvards to P-40s and then to Corsairs. Yep. So if you're going to make any mistakes, um, the P-40 is probably the one would, which would be involved in a lot of those of, of, you know, lack of experience and the not so good visibility out of some of those cockpits. Right. That's what I, right. I think is probably the answer why the so many P-40s were involved. Yeah, in fact, right at the last days of the war, August 45, I think they had two Harvards and four Kitty Hawks collide, and I think most of the pilots were killed. And that was all at OTUs, wow. all those aircraft. And, 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 and yeah, often, often fatal results. Sometimes they yep. get out, other times it depends on if, if, you, if a propeller comes up to you, you've had it. And very nasty. Yeah, I know one of the particularly nasty ones at Ardmore uh, with the uh, number four OTU was uh, a, a formation of four aircraft that were flying over Papakura and two of the aircraft in the formation um, touched and ended up um, crashing and, and uh, uh, one of the pilots of, of uh, one of those aircraft, uh, John Turakatani was killed and he was a, a Maori pilot and uh, from the famous Turakatani family that uh, well known in politics and his, his uncle was a member of the government and things like that so right yeah, yeah. 
Yes, exactly, and and uh, I think she might have been the granddaughter of the MP that was sitting at, at the at the time um, when when John was killed. So, <clears throat> but that 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 formation was led by Trevor Pierce, uh, my old mate Trevor Pierce, and um, he wrote about that in his book online. So that brings up an interesting thing too, is that I, I think you mentioned four pilots. That was this, later in the war when they went to the four finger four. Of course, that the, the standard organisation the OTUs was for one staff pilot. Because they didn't have many, didn't need many flying instructors as such on the fighter road to you. They're all fully qualified pilots there. But yep. uh, they had one staff pilot for every three pupils on the course. And they just flew right. basically as a section right through the course. And that's why you often see, um, see them listed as um, in, in accident reports that shows up, like that one you mentioned there, with right. flying right. As, a four, as a section. And that was, as I said, that was the basic formation of a. Fighter element. So yeah, it was the four of made up of two pairs. Right. Yep. Exactly. Followed right through. Uh, another interesting one uh, with, in terms of um, collisions. Uh, one of the um, OTU aircraft at Ahakia was NZ three zero six one, and it collided in the air with three zero two one, which was destroyed, and six one survived, and then four months later. 6-1 also uh, collided again in the air with uh, NZ-3-221 and NZ-3-0-1-2. So it hit two aircraft in that incident and, and 3-2-2-1 crashed and, and was destroyed as well. So NZ-3-0-6-1 collided with three aircraft in the air and two of them were destroyed. So that's that's an interesting little... Uh... A, tiny, a tiny little morsel there for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, obviously, uh, probably four months later, it would have been different pilots flying that aircraft, but uh, that particular aircraft sounds like a, a bit of a menace in the air. <laughs> oh, just in the wrong place at the wrong time, I think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, actually, because training at OTUs is actually uh, quite a few of the, the um, autobiographies or biographies of some of these fighter pilots have written their memoirs and, um, and uh, you can hear quite a bit about the experiences at the OTUs and they give you a pretty good idea of what they got up to. Yes. They, they, yeah. Mostly they sort of enjoyed it, enjoyed it a, lot, a lot, you know, they'd never flown like that before. You know, tail chasing and this sort of thing was a great sport, I reckon, flying through clouds. And, and then uh, target practice on um, shooting at waves, uh, shooting at shadows of clouds on the sea was uh, apparently quite a good sport. It was, it was encouraged too. Okay. You would find you're uh, getting your eye in. And they did do, um, of course they did, New Zealand, the uh, at the service flying training schools with Harvard, they did do gunnery training as part of their normal training course. And yep. In fact, that dated right back to the beginning of the war when they they did the same with um, you know Ferry Gordons and uh, Hines and yep. things, all the beasts. Yep. And yep. Oxfords couldn't because they uh, the only gunnery you could do on those, of course, was in the turret, and they did right. that too. Remember, there there was a, an Oxford crash into the street, main street of Akaroa in June 1940, and they, they, those two pilots were supposed to be up doing practicing aerial gunnery, oh, okay. which was something that they did in the area pre-war, but they cut it out during the war. But in New Zealand, we kept up that for um, um, quite a while, 
and it was fighter pilots. We kept it up right through. Whereas in the Canadian schools, for most of the war, they did not do aerial gunnery at service, you know, single engine service flying training schools. It was, it was a postgraduate exercise, as far as they're concerned. Oh, right. That's interesting. But it's Australia and New Zealand kept up the gunnery right through for, for single for the single engine pilots anyway, because it was they considered it a core skill. Right. And there's no reason why you couldn't learn it uh, earlier in the you know, during your flying training, normal flying training. Yeah, yeah. Now you were you were going to talk about uh, the uh, the ground attack uh, role yes. and uh, bo- bombing and strafing. Yes, I did do a bit of work on that. In fact, I, did, I had to draw up some tables, and I haven't really done any great great uh, interpretation of them, but it, you, you sort of get a sense for it. But Basically, once the, um, the Japanese air forces ceased to be a uh, consideration in the theatre where the New Zealand aircraft were operating, they, um, the theatre commander, who was of course was American, said, "Right, all you fighter jobs, now you're, you're now fighter bomber pilots or dive bombers. They weren't really dive bombers, but um, they became fighter bombers, and that was all American aircraft and all the New Zealand aircraft in the theatre." Yep. Army Air Forces, US Navy Marine, US Marine Corps, and the RZF, which of course was the tiniest part of it. But we had at this, uh, well, we talked about February '44. We had still, despite the fact we probably had about when how many squadrons we had by then? 19, 19, probably had about six or seven squadrons formed up by then. But we only had two actually in the Ford area at any one time. And yep. one an immediate reserve at uh, Guadalcanal, so it was basically just a fighter wing of two squadrons, which would give you yes. 42 aircraft and about you know, 54 what would it be 27, 54 pilots, isn't it? Which was to allow for you know sickness and minor injuries and tiredness and deafness and whatever else ailed them. Yep. And so at the end of February '44, the the opposite. Japanese air opposition at Rabaul just sort of faded away completely, mainly because the Americans had mounted uh, some massive attacks on their major fleet base at Truk, which was in the Carolina Islands, just to a few, some hundred miles, some hundreds of miles north of Rabaul and the Bismarck archipelago. They just, whatever fighters they had left, and, and bombers for that matter, they just flew north to replace the carnage that had uh, overtaken that base. And the Americans arrived off, off, off just over the horizon from there with about, I forget what it was, some numbers of aircraft carriers anyway, all loaded to the gunnels with Hellcats and Hell Divers and things. Yep. And um, gave them a real pasting. So the Japanese just pulled out all the stuff and uh, as one writer put it, he just said they just, they just left a ball to its fate. Just had to survive without air cover. And that's oh, for right. the rest of the war. Yep. You probably realise that, in fact, they did have a few aircraft hidden away in the bushes and they managed to sometimes get some keen types to get another one serviceable, but they were really only to supposedly raise the morale of the troops there, but I can't see how it could have, really. You know, you'd seen one aircraft take off at night and fly around a bit with its lights on, which they did do. Um, at least I don't think, I don't think they, they probably thought it was a bit of a joke, really. <laughs> Anyway, that's uh, so. The the entire fighter force in the South Pacific Command—I don't think it was actually called quite that at the time—but um, we'll, we'll call it that. 
for simplicity. The commanding officer said, right, you're all fighter bombers, get to work. Oh, well, our operations officers are drawing up plans as we speak for things for you to bomb. And they, apparently the New Zealand, and I think the Americans have probably been done a, a little bit of experimenting with bombing, but there was really no, not much time for it because there was, the, the fighters were so much in demand up till then as fighter escorts for the bombers, which we had been bombing the ball and other Japanese places up in the Solomons, particularly Bougainville. Yep. and New Ireland, and um, as I said, they'd done a bit of experimentation, and the New Zealand fighters wing at that stage was under a chap called Wing Commander, I think it was Wing Commander, C.W.K. Nichols, who was an RAF officer, but a New Zealander, he'd been sent out to help us, and he'd been, in fact, uh, in command of the wing, and he also commanded on Torakina by this time, he, they were at Torakina. Yeah. And, um, and they used to stage through uh, Green Island when they were bombing the ball. Yep. Oh, oh tell a lie, they weren't even bombing the ball then. Um, when they were attacking the ball with, with um, that, but basically escorting bombers. Anyway, once right. the Japanese Air Force cleared out, they um, they pretty well had bomb racks and things available, and they must have, I think they just started bombing. Um, they, they didn't use a site as such, because the people didn't have a a bomb site as such. They just seem to do it by, as far as I can figure out, by gosh or by golly and just by eye. Right, okay. Uh, uh, of course, you're probably aware that some American Navy fighters in particular did have a bomb aiming panel in the floor. Oh, yeah. Pipes. yeah. So you could look down and there was a perspex panel there. And I think the aircraft that had that included the Corsair, yep. the Buffalo, and probably the... Wildcat and the Hellcat perhaps had them too, I don't know. But I think they just got pretty dusty and filthy down there and I don't think they were of much use. It was, it was only of use for level bombing anyway, it certainly wouldn't be useful for gentle dive bombing. Anyway, they, um, I've actually got a, I don't think I'll read it out to you, but I've got the, I've got a report written by Nichols, it was about five or six pages long about his experience with this, this period of operation. <coughs> from Torakina, and um, so they fitted the bomb racks, and Boris just tried out drive dive bombing on their first mission. And I see that the first, you know, the first, very first dive bombing they did, best, best described as glide bombing, I think, yep. uh, was 7th of March, fully four, which was only about a week after the last Japanese aircraft had been sighted. Well, they actually, they did see the odd one or two around for some quite some weeks after that, but basically they had disappeared. And they were um, sending off, as I said, they had the two squadrons there, they were sending off pretty well every day, uh, both squadrons of up to 12, generally 12 P-40s, sometimes at least, uh, loaded up with 500-pound general-purpose bombs. Well, just the American, standard American general purpose bombs with a box tail. We won't bother about fusing or anything like that, but um, they just flew up to Rabaul. So as I said, the 7th of March, 44 anyway, was the very first strike, proper strike. They had, as I said, they'd done a few experiments before that, including, I think they, were, they used to do it, dropping small bombs in their own, uh, within the perimeter at Tor around Torakina, I think, on Bougainville, just to see uh, how effective these bombs were. But they 
pretty well knew what the bombs could do. And in fact, some of the early ones they even used, uh, I think in 843, I think they were doing experiments with P40s using these New Zealand ones using their 25 gallon drop tanks. And I think they put a um, strapped a uh, incendiary bomb on the side of it and a detonator. Okay. And they um, tried these out on um, targets. I think they even, they even dropped a few on Japanese targets, and they, they, they gave good, they, they seemed to be quite spectacular. It was just petrol, it wasn't napalm or anything. Yep. And in fact, in 43, they they actually, uh, in May 43, I think it was the first occasion when our P-40s bombed Japanese shipping. Uh, and these were um, what they claimed to be motor torpedo boats in, um, somewhere in the central Solomons. They had been spotted by somebody and they went to... I think about eight P-40s were sent up to um, to try and destroy them, and they had decided to use uh, their 75-gallon drop tanks, and they they dropped them uh, on or near the boats, and then they came in and strafed them, and they knew their you know their their um, ammunition load included um, high explosives and tracers and things. Yep. And in. Uh, do they have incendiaries? I'm not sure. Anyway, they, they managed to ignite their um, a floating petrol. But oh, exactly, right. exactly how successful that was, I don't know. <laughs> they said there was a lot of smoke and flames, but whether they actually set fire to the boats, I'm not sure. But, the, right. but they, it turns out they weren't motor torpedo boats at all. They were a type of mine, uh, auxiliary minesweeper, but they were you know about 60 or 70 feet long or something. Okay. They, reckon, they reckon they toasted about two of them, but... Who knows? But that was that was the first attempt at, by our P-40s of actually strafing Japanese naval sh- naval vessels. <laughs> right. They didn't do it often. They they did do well, they did they did strafe some destroyers too in a famous attack on the um, around about that time on the uh, some destroyers that had been mined in a what's called Blackett Strait somewhere in the Central Solomons. So about three or four of them were in serious trouble, and the P-40s went in. I think they did strafing with them. That was quite spectacular. The they, they, Japanese returned fire, of course, but I don't think the P-40s suffered any return fire. Anyway, get back to Feb, March 44. They um, they seem to be quite busy. They just sent off pretty well every day. They sent off up to 24 aircraft uh, to Rabaul on the area around Rabaul. Um, they had supply large supply dumps around that. that Part on the of the Gazelle Peninsula, and I think they were doing quite a bit of damage. Um, you know, they, you, you get these summaries of the each, the first raid, the very first raid they tried. They said, um, you know, 14 squadron with 12 P40s, 11 hits in general area. That was the Rabaul Township, and the other squadron claimed three hits, although there are only eight of them. Next day, Rabaul Township again results satisfactory. <laughs> right. And these are always 500-pound GPs, you know, they're just the standard 500-pound bomb. But, of course, they also had up their sleeves, they had these incendiary bombs, and the Americans had several types of those. And there were, there were small ones, 100-pounders, and they, a lot of these used magnesium or sometimes something called thermate, which I haven't quite figured out what it is yet. It sounds like thermite, which was a well-known German recipe from the First World War, which comprised, uh, I think it was... Iron filings and um, aluminium powder. 
Okay. And they apparently burned very, very vigorously. Anyway, these rays kept up just pretty well uh, day after day, I think, probably presumably as, as permitted by the weather. Uh, both squadrons seem to be involved every day. Uh, sometimes they say excellent bombing. Anyway, then we come to, well, they still, then they, they start attacking supply areas as well, which they reckon that's where most of their stuff was stored. And there are several well-known areas around in, in the Gazelle Peninsula, including a place called Vunapope, or Vunapopi, and there was, a, uh, Railham was another one, Caravia Bay was another one. You know, and, you know, there was, the Japanese had fuel stores and oil stores, and they had sawmills and airfields, and uh, where's another one? Talili Bay was another storage area. And, and even around the airfields, they had their own storage areas. You know, they'd have their ammunition and fuel and bomb, you know, supplies of bombs and equipment. They were just basically trying to destroy all the Japanese infrastructure they could reach. And they thought this, these fighter bombers were, now that they're unleashed, they, they'd be probably a lot, um, they'd, they'd die down right, right down fairly low to, to get these things. I, I don't know that I should have actually looked up what sort of heights they were using, but I haven't got it with me here. But I think they, they were just sort of gentle that I think they'd dive towards them from, I don't know what, maybe 10,000 feet down to maybe three or four. I should be able to find it if I look. And and then they just uh, and they they had to sort of calculate over the nose and then they'd sort of pull up I think and release the bombers they pulled up something like that and sometimes they got quite close. <laughs> In <Yeah>. fact, they <laughs> well more practice you obviously going to improve your aim. And they just seemed to do this, but anyway they introduced um, that was all through March. They were going strong. Yes, the two squadrons when they started this were. 14 and 18, but of course as they come to the end of their tours, suddenly a new squadron pops up and then the old one disappears. But they've always got the two squadrons there. But then they suddenly start using, on uh, 21st of March, they started using 1,000 pounds general purpose bombs. That was the first use of that bomb on the P-40s. Uh, they, they didn't use them very often. Um, but and then in twenty uh, fourth of March they finally start using the incendiaries and they these were used specifically against supply areas. They right. thought that's where they do the most damage. They found that if you drop them in the jungle, uh, incendiaries weren't nearly so um, successful. Of course, unless it's got something really good to burn. Yeah. And they um, they just they just they're really heavily all through the end of March and into April they're still throwing these. 500-pound incendiaries. These, these, I'm pretty sure, are magnesium ones, or thermate. And, and but they, as I said, they did have other ones which don't show up. Like I know the Americans used phosphorus bombs. Okay. For pretty nasty-looking things, they'd they'd drop them and they'd have air-burst ones, and they'd send down like like an octopus. You know, you'd see this big head with it, but all the tent tentacles curving outwards from it. There actually some very good photographs taken of them being dropped on Japanese airfields. But I don't think New Zealand used those ones. They might have been better for you know, B-25s or something. Right, right. But anyway, they, and here, oh, here's an interesting one. On the 30th of March, they used something different. Um, eight P-40s of 16 squadron, each loaded with a 650-pound depth charge. Oh, wow. Now, okay. they're using these to... Now, that's interesting. Uh, it was a strike in Kiravia Bay, which was um, 
somewhere in Simpson Harbour, which was the main harbour yep. Liverpool. And they, they, the comment was, strike originally intended for submarines in Simpson Harbour. Oh, wow. I thought, well, somebody must have thought they saw a submarine there, but uh, obviously they couldn't find it, so they must have just dropped it on the next best thing they could find. But that's the only time, and that's probably why they had the depth charges, I think, because they might have been considered more effective. But that's the only, I think the only cases I've ever seen of them, the P-40s actually using depth charges. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Although in Tonga, when 15 Squadron were there, the Americans ordered them up, and he, he had them loading, loading them up with uh, depth charges. Okay. Because he thought there were submarines lurking around, and they never saw one, but... <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he, he, he was the fellow that made the uh, comment... Um, I think it was in the official history, the, um, the commanding officer said, you know, up here's probably army. He, he said, um, they said, oh, I haven't got any bomb racks. And, um, and he says, oh, the pilots could take them up. They could sit them on their laps and throw them over the side. Uh, <laughs> they had to tell them that they were a little bit bigger than that. And uh, in fact, then they found the bomb racks. And, uh, oh, no. I think, as far as I know, I think they did use them. But, uh, well, when I say carried them, but I don't think they ever dropped them on anything. Never right. dropped a submarine. But they the but 650-pound depth charges on P-40s are pretty rare. Usually just the 500 GPs and some occasionally 1,000-pounders, plus these incendiary things. And I won't tell you the name of it because it's quite long. <laughs> okay. And, and But it was of the type, I think, that, that was... You've seen you've, the photographs you published on the on your page had a picture of, picture of one of these things. You know, they're about... Yes. Well, I don't know, it might be five or six, five feet long or something. And uh, they, they look like a, like a parallel-sided container. Um, quite large. I don't think they had tails on, did they? Or did they? I, I'm i not sure. But I'm I know sure. the later ones, they did put they did put box tails, but the early ones, they just they, they didn't. Okay. And they had 124 or 128 or something of these two-pound or four-pound sticks inside them that used to, when they dropped this container, it would, at a certain height, it would fly open and all it would all sort of disintegrate into bits and all these little incendiary devices fell out, tumbling down. And, uh, well, they, they, they were actually, I think they were intended to um, fly in a more or less a straight line. I don't know whether they tumbled. Uh, and these are the things that did all the burning of these supply depots. Right. And generally, you know, quite a, I've, I've got all the results. You know, they say, uh, and a, uh, Luke is, well, that's thousand pounders on Luke and I airfield, but here's another one. Vuna Pope supply area, target covered in smoke, large fire. You know, that's the sort of reports you get. Okay. Another one, you know, Talili Bay, excellent bombing. Then the next day, all bombs in the area, three good fires started. Next day, same again. Um... A lot of these bombs do seem to fall in the what they call the target area, so they think they're doing some good anyway. And this just goes on and on, all through April and into May, and that, then they interspersed. So they but they generally ended up just using the incendiaries against the supply areas, and the other ones would use against everything airfields in particular. They used to use hard, you know, ex high explosive bombs on airfields to crater them. That was a popular. And they also used them, these sort of bombs on a, to a small extent around Bougainville too. And okay. they, if they couldn't get through, if the weather was bad and towards Rabaul, they'd just restrict their attacks to all around Bougainville. That was always on. 
And um, as, as I said, the, most of the targets were on the coast, so if you did a complete circuit of the island, which would take you, I don't know, a couple of hours, um, you just checked on all the likely spots and you kept away from where you knew there were, were a lot of anti-aircraft guns. No, yep. no point in uh, agitating them and, and try and catch trucks. And um, it, used, it used to be often just buildings. Uh, I might see a barge poking out from somewhere. Often it was, you'd think, why would they bother, you know? But <laughs> yep. they would just tour around all of the time. Um, Uh, and it makes you wonder, but like a lot, often the targets described described as a, a mission, you know, church property, and you think, oh, well, you know, if they suspect that the Japanese use it, you know, they'll bomb it. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah it. we can yeah. always square up after war. <laughs> right, give, them exactly. a, give them a grant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But again, they, they I've, I've got a list of all the Bougainville raids too, but. Generally, let's see. Often, actually, they often they're quite good strikes of eight, twelve aircraft. Yep. Okay. Each day, um, they're quite quite busy on the job. All the usual squadrons there. Um, what's this one? Here's a strange one. Oh yes, this is where they started using some other experimental bombs. This is uh, mostly. Oh, it's sixteen and seventeen squadrons. They start talking about two. Incendiaries you uh, carried by these two aircraft. Uh, uh, only one incendiary ignited by strafing. Doesn't even say the size of them. Okay. And then they, and that's was it. That's on the seventh of May. On the tenth and eleventh of May, they've also got incendiaries being carried by P-40s. Um, yeah, Porton Plantation is a successful raid with the new petrol incendiaries. I think they're just they're probably using fuel tanks actually. Well, here's one definitely says two. Carrying 75-gallon petrol incendiaries—that's that's their fuel tanks. That's, right. That, that's a later use of them because they did use them in late '43 too, just briefly. Okay. And then they just seem to stay with the old 500-pounder jeep. Well, they don't even say what they are. They just say 500-pounders. So whether they're GPs or incendiaries, it doesn't say, unfortunately. And right. that was right up to the time they withdrew them in the, the, the beginning of June. The the second of June, I think, was the last day that P-40s flew operations from Torokina, and that was it. That was the end of all dive bombing for P-40s. And funny enough, the Corsairs took over then, but they had been starting to bo use bombs, but they got into trouble and they... I think they had one... He, Corsair shook its um, bomb rack clean off off its off its uh, attachment to the aircraft, complete with bomb, 1,000-pound. Yep. I think it was... Was it when they were starting it up, the engine fired and it was sort of rough, sort of jumped around a bit, and the, the shaking was so violent the bomb fell off. Wow. And they um, they stopped using them. Uh, they thought they were too dodgy after that. And they, they were, I think they operated for quite some weeks just strafing until they got got the, the bomb rack problem sorted out and they started bombing again. Okay. We did. I did mention briefly that the yeah. RZF did use napalm to a certain to a certain extent too in 1944. Although I don't think it was by P40s, but the Venturas were certainly using it from. Well, June 44, uh, and these these were 500 pound. What do they call them? Um, oh, yeah, a whole lot of small things bundled together. Um, what do they call those things? Uh. <laughs> cluster, cl cluster bomb. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, yeah. they've got a bad reputation these days, probably for yeah. good reason. Yeah. They, they were they were basically a whole lot of small bombs all bundled together on a stream 
not a particularly streamlined container, and they often drop the whole container, which would then sometimes would descend a bit before a timing. Uh, it would pop, the thing would spring, and the whole thing would pop apart. The uh, straps around it opened up, and the whole thing collapsed, and all this stuff fell out. And they all shot, zoomed off to the ground on their own trajectories. And um, the, yeah, the napalm ones, were, they were caught, usually in the records, they just called them oil bombs. It took me a long time to figure out what oil bombs were, but sometimes right. they mentioned the designation, and you look that up, and aha, this is the original napalm. But, but at that time, it was just seen as another uh, an improved incendiary, like yep. you know, like they had they had this thermate and this phosphorus and other things, magnesium. They all burn like crazy, and of course, this stuff was just jellyfied petrol and um, and then sort of binders and things, and and and, and they were they were packed in these very small. I think they were two pound or four pound. Looked, looked a bit like in all incendiaries, you know, like the ones the Germans dropped and the British dropped in World War Two. They were just, you know, a couple of feet long and an inch and a half, two inches in octagonal shapes often, or hexagonal. Yep. Sometimes they had little parachutes would come out the back to slow them down. Others, they just left them as they were. But okay. the napalm ones, actually, they landed on the ground and they something else was activated and they sort of... Um, Popped or something and uh, activated, uh, uh, ignited the uh, filling, which was which is this oil jelly stuff they call it. Yeah. Jellyfied petrol and or gasoline, and away they went. And they they each started smallish fires, but they, they did have all the characteristics of, or many of the characteristics of, what we now understand as napalm. Uh, it, it did stick to things. It was designed to. Of course, later on yep. they made it stickier and stickier. So you just couldn't get it off. But the wartime okay. stuff was um, mainly mainly for burning crops or burning down buildings or dry wood, anything like that, trees. Yep. And that's what they were used for. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, it wouldn't pay to get hit by one, really. No, not at all. Let alone the whole container of a load of them. But um, that's the sort of stuff they were hurling about. And, and there was always strafing, of course. There was, oh, yeah, true, yeah. They 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 yeah. never came back with hardly ever came back with all their ammunition. Put it that way, right? Or nor even the bombs for that matter. Generally, they seem, they don't seem to bring any bombs back. Although bombers sometimes did if they and depth charges normally were brought back because they were only saved for unless they were being used for destroying um, jungle growth and things to open up targets. Right. Yeah. Oh well. Um. Maybe to a, a lighter subject now. I, I always enjoy the um, the sort of social side of things uh, with with squadrons, and and one of the things that I I really love is uh, the uh, nose art and, and and particular names that aircraft got, and some of our P40s got some particularly interesting names and uh, or nicknames painted on the side of them, and I guess the the most famous one of all would be uh, Jeff Fiskin's aircraft, the Wire Wrapper Wildcat, which was NZ3072. And um, an interesting story behind that one, because the aircraft got damaged uh, on the way up to the Pacific, and it was repaired by an American unit who stenciled on a cat, a black cat, which was their emblem. And um, when, when uh, the aircraft came back to 14 Squadron, it just had the black cat on it, and that aircraft was allocated to Jeff. 
and uh, he wrote home to his wife and said, "I've I've been given a, a an aircraft that has this black cat on it, and I want to I want to have a name for it." And so she wrote back and suggested. Uh, she said, uh, "Your squadron formed in the wire wrapper, uh, which is a district. Uh, it's a a province in New Zealand. For those who don't know what wire wrapper means, and um, and your um." Your two fitters are both from Wire Wrapper. Your fitter and uh, rigger are from Wire Wrapper. And you were working in the Wire Wrapper just before uh, joining the Air Force. He, he wasn't actually from, from Wire Wrapper himself, like everybody seems to think. He was actually from Gisborne. Um, but, uh, you know, why not call it the Wire Wrapper Wildcat? And so it was his wife that actually named that aircraft. Yeah. And, and that was... Uh, yeah, he told me that himself, and I thought that was um, it was interesting that uh, it, it was done that way, and of course it became very famous because he was already an ace from Singapore. He'd shot down six aircraft in Buffaloes and um, carried on to uh, get several more uh, in the P40s. But uh, also with uh, 14 Squadron uh, earlier, when they were at Masterton, a number of the aircraft there got uh, some interesting names, and one of them is. I'm sloppagus. I'm sloppagus. Yeah, two A's. Yeah, yeah, that's right. True. Yeah, and then another one was Parky Carcass. That was NZ three o three six. Now Parky Carcass was actually the, the stage name of an American actor, which obviously they've picked up on uh, on Parky Carcass there. Uh, um sloppagus was uh, someone from Greek mythology. No, no, H. Ryder Haggard. Ah, that's King right, yes. Solomon's or mines or something, and, uh, correct, and the Queen correct. of Sheba and all that. Yes, yep. Peter. Uh, I think that was Peter Gifford's one. Yeah, I think you're right. There. I, think, I think I right. could be wrong, but he knew all about it. He says they yeah. just thought up all thought up ridiculous names for them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, went a, they went through a brief spurt of this sort of stuff, and that's when they, a lot of them appeared in fourteen, like sixteen squadron had some odd little markings to it at Woodburn. Okay, okay. And 14 was well known for those crazy names. Yep, well, like, um, some more of the 14 Squadron ones. There was Ivan Elevenich, uh, which, um, if, at first glance, you think, oh, it looks like some sort of, you know, uh, European name, and then you think, hang on, Ivan Elevenich. Uh, okay, sounds Russian. Uh, oh, I, yeah. Well, Ivan, particularly. You're my father. Yeah, Ivan, yeah. Yeah, but of course it's uh, I have a hell of an itch. <laughs> so that's a little play on words, yeah. And then there's a uh, magnolia mufflewort was another one. Oh, that ah, sorry, that was Peter. That was Peter Gifford's one. Ah, okay. Stopagus must have been somebody else, but he knew about those names. Right, right. And magnolia mufflewort, I think he must have heard that from somewhere. I've never been able to find out any reference to that where it's come. Oh, of course, poor old Peter passed away about oh, in two thousand and three, I think. Okay. So we can't ask him anymore. Um, there was one P40, I don't know what its serial number was because you can't see it in the photo, but it was uh, had a had Maori name, uh, Hei Hou, I think. I don't, I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that, but it's H-E space H-O apostrophe U. And apparently that means like new. <laughs> so so uh, it makes me, makes me wonder if it had been damaged and then it came back came back like new. <laughs> There's a story behind it, well, you'd think mm. it would be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You think they have to be. Yep. And there's a there's another P40 that had. Uh, well, I, I don't know the serial number for this one either, but I, uh, I know that it was called Kohimara Mara Seven. And. Uh, well, this one I've got it noted down as seven, but I think there must have been quite a few Kohimara Maras because 
of course he uh, wore that name. Okay. Um, yes, I have seen that. I'd, I'd like to know which. Yeah, I'd like to know which ones. Um, yeah, what all what all the aircraft were. <laughs> What's the common thread? Mm, exactly. Why? Uh, I mean, was it just someone from Koei Marimu, which is a, a suburb in Auckland, or is there a connection with the flying school at Koei Marimu? Maybe. Um, I just think, you know, there's, there's got to be some sort of story behind this, but is it worth mm. telling? Or is, exactly. it, is it just so obscure? <laughs> yeah, or well, who can tell it these days? Yeah, who uh, could? And then chances are there is nobody to tell it. Yeah, exactly. Not impossible, but highly unlikely that we'll ever yep, track that person down. Absolutely. Or or there might have been somebody who told the story years ago to someone who's got that story out there, recorded. So uh, if anyone can... Uh, or a rough version you know, of it, at least. Yeah, exactly. If anyone can enlighten us on these. Um, of course, number four servicing unit uh, started naming their aircraft because they... They did. They had they had letters on the cows of their aircraft for each individual, so there would be A, B, C, D. And it, almost all of their aircraft, it seems, they attached a name to it. They did, yeah. Uh, and, and, and in a similar style, I think, or in the uh, same sort mm. of placing, placement, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 with... Uh, with uh, big white letters, and um, I, I know that A, the uh, aircraft A, became uh, Tauranga Ruru, which was a bit of a an odd one because it didn't correspond with the letter A. Normally, they picked a name that went with the the code letter as its capital, but Tauranga Ruru was actually the name uh, was the, the place of where the pilot came from, who was allocated the aircraft. That was his village, so. Um, so that was A, and then D became Danger, and of course Danger is Air Force slang, it's actually short for Dangaroo, um, which is basically a pilot who's uh, so inexperienced he's dangerous, so the, 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 um... It was one of those, those in words that sort of caught on for a while in the Air Force, mm. and it wasn't, yeah, exactly. wasn't understood much outside the Air Force. That's right, that's right, and I, I think uh, collectively they, they were Dangaroos, <laughs> so, you know, which is, you know, play on dangerous, so... Um, and then there was uh, the code letter E was named Erica, and code letter F became Flora Ann. Yeah, there was, yeah. And then there's, of course, there was three different P40s and a Corsair that all uh, were called uh, Gloria Lions. Uh, that was G, mm. uh, G code letter, and that was named after a girl that the servicing unit adopted as their mascot. Uh, she was a polio patient um, who had written to them and uh, they, they used to correspond with her and so they had four of the aircraft named after her. Um, Nobody's found a picture of their Corsi yet but it was mentioned, it did exist because it's mentioned in the unit history. Right. They named, right. They named this Corsair. Yeah, uh, and of course one, one of those P-40s is still still around now with uh, John Smith. Yes, yeah. but not with a cowling. Ah, oh that's a pity, I didn't know that. As far as I know. Okay. Um, not with the, um, yeah, I think I think the cows got knocked off at some a fairly early stage. Okay. Other okay. P40s, most of the P40s you see at the dump, they've just got the firewall and engine mounts. No right. cows, they must right. have all been smelted down or sold or something. Put in a, put yeah. in the old furnace. Okay. Uh, now the code letter I. Uh, was two-timer. Now, I don't know where that... There's got to be a story behind that. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, often yeah. a very um, peculiar to one or two people wouldn't, might know the story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then uh, an interesting one was the aircraft with the code letter P became Paddy the Rip. Now, Paddy the Rip 
was a racehorse at the time, and that same name uh, was also used on one of our Dauntless aircraft. So, uh, yeah. So, so there were at least two aircraft that had Paddy the Rip on it. I don't know if it was connected with the same person or yeah, a bit of popular culture entering in there. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I've, I've got a photograph that shows almost all of the, uh, or it could be all of the four SU aircraft all lined up, and you can actually see that. In that photo, also, there's names on the aircraft that are coded J, T, V, B, S, and N, as well as all the others I mentioned. But you can't actually read the names because the they're in the background and a bit fuzzy. Just, yeah, it's a real shame. I'd love to find a a better version of that photo or other photos of of four SU aircraft because there's they've all got names, so it's it's tantalising to find out what they were. Well, there's certainly some people aren't there, obviously, that like like to name their aircraft. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, there's, a, there's a couple of things I, I want to just mention, and one is that there's a, f- a few surviving RNZFP-40s now, and uh, one of them is, of course, flying here in New Zealand, uh, NZ-3009, which is uh, based at Masterton, and it's an X-14 squadron aircraft that was originally based at Masterton. So, Indeed it was, um, yes. So that's, that's pretty cool that that one's still flying. Unfortunately, it's in Chinese markings instead of New <laughs> Zealand markings, but... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, of of the 118 uh, P-40 aircraft that went to Rooker here, the big old rubbish dump where they all got melted down, not that many have survived, but uh, 3009 um, has survived and flies at air shows regularly. And uh, we also have at MOTAT, there's NZ3039, which is basically a, a bit of data plate rebuild, I think, but um, it's representative of... Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, we mentioned John Smith before. He's got two uh, RZFP forties in his collection. Uh, NZ three zero four three, which is a P forty E, one of the originals. Right. And mm. yeah, exactly. And he's also got um, three two two zero, which is one of the Glory Lines uh, aircraft that we were just mentioning. And. Um, John Chambers rescued uh, a couple of aircraft too, and one of them, 3094, is one of the ex-Tonga aircraft, and that's now with the Pei family in Australia, um, flying in Australian colours. Um, so that's great that that's still flying. It'd be nice to see it in New Zealand colours in New Zealand, but uh, we can't can't complain too much. Just, just an interesting point, but a lot of people think New Zealand sort of destroyed most of its, well, P-40s for instance. But in the United States, they pretty well destroyed all theirs. Um, in fact, oh, right. practically, for a long time, the only P-40 surviving in the United States were ones that had been imported from Canada because they sold oh. off a lot. Because the Americans did an awful lot of scrapping of aircraft immediately yeah. after the war, particularly, particularly things like P-40s, which are considered totally obsolete. You know, they keep the, P- the newer P-51s and that sort of thing. Even, they didn't keep many P-38s. They all got this chop. Um, right. okay. A few, few P-47s were saved for the you know, Air National Guard and that sort of thing. But um, New Zealand actually had a better survival rate of the P-40s that survived the war than the um, United States did. And, That's really and, interesting. And uh, in fact, most of these ones in the States now, you'll, they come from all over the world. You know, they've brought them back from here, there and everywhere, including some from yep. New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, From the few true. that survived here. And they, they, the only, I think the only original one they actually kept, they had one in the US Air Force Museum, I think. I think it was a very late model one. Often they, their museum actually kept things like prototypes, which were very interesting in themselves, but they didn't sort of initially collect um, standard 
mass production type aircraft, you know, the, the manufacturers used to donate all their prototypes, which they didn't want anymore, to the museum. Right. And the, the museum right. had an awful lot of those for a long time. And I was quite intrigued by this fact that they just about every P-40 flying in the United States was from out of town, you know, it was from the countries on the other side of the world, usually. Well, it's really interesting. Of course, uh, uh, Pioneer Aero here in um, New Zealand and also uh, Precision Aerospace in Australia, they've rebuilt, uh, between them, they've, they've probably rebuilt something like 20 uh, P-40s back to flying, maybe less than that, but... Uh, until sort of 20 years ago there was only about 10 that were flying in the world and and the, the population's risen a lot now but and a lot of them now they're, they're ones that have been pulled out of russia that's uh, true and and um as well as the pacific and and uh, as you say canada and stuff like that but uh, i know that even now um i've got friends in, in america who say it's a really rare thing to see two p40s at, at the same air show over in America, so we're really lucky here because we've got um, the P40N uh, that Frank and Liz Needham own at, at Ardmore, and we've got the P40E at Masterton, and they often appear together at air shows in New Zealand, so we're very lucky to see that. And of course, occasionally uh, at some of the big air shows, Pioneer Aero might uh, have you know finished a rebuild, and they'll have a, a third aircraft. So we have actually seen three P40s flying together. Probably should also mention that there is another uh, XR and ZFP 40M uh, flying flying in the USA now. Uh, that's another one that is that uh, the one that won all the prizes and mm, yeah, won the prizes at uh, yeah at, at Oshkosh. Right, I, I had dealings with a, a fellow there. Um, oh, right. I can't remember. Was it 3119? That's correct. Yep, 3119, and uh, it, it's uh, by the Tri-State Aviation Museum uh, in, in America. And it wears New Zealand colours. It's the only P-40 flying in New Zealand colours. So. Of course, the weird thing about that one was it was claimed that it had a um, Japanese um, you know, meatball insignia on it, a, a, a claim, yeah, a victory marking, yeah. if you will. And uh, that, that's unexplained as yet because as far as we know, it, it never never left New Zealand. No, yeah, there's a little bit of artist licence in the story. Oh, but the, no, uh, that was based on, I think, Bunny Darby reckoned he, he, he uh, noted it at the time that it had this Japanese flag on it. And, you know, what does that mean? Most people would say, well, it means it's shot down a Japanese aircraft. Well, no, well, of course, we, do, we have another famous case of an RGFP-40 with markings that it's, the aircraft itself is, uh, it's uh, questionable use of it, and that the uh, you might be aware of it. it was Mike the one that Mike Herrick was photographed in? Oh yeah. Him and um, you know the Luftwaffe um, crosses yes. painted on yep. the side of it, and of course it had never left New Zealand. Well, it had been up in the Pacific, but it um, and that I think that was carried forward from its time in Britain, of course. So pilots do claim the right to display their trophies, if you will, on their aircraft, no matter where they are. Just as a confusing practice, but you can understand it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and it's apparent that uh, 3119, when it was at the OTU, uh, was the the squadron, or the, the unit commander's personal aircraft or something, wasn't it? So he's he's possibly put that on because he was up in the Pacific earlier. That's what you're saying, isn't well, it? Well, it's a possibility, yeah, but the aircraft, yeah. Itself, the aircraft itself hadn't been up there. No, that's right. That's but right. That, that would be uh, analogous to um, Herrick's. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, putting put his German markings you know, on, 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 yeah, on a New Zealand aircraft in New Zealand. 
<laughs> just, exactly. It's, it's just you, you, you can't um, say that's not fair or that's not right, but he did it, you know, and who's going to stop him? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's history. He did it. And, and, and yeah, I'm yeah. sure other people did it too. Yeah, I'm sure they did. I've just used these things as my school board. This is, this is my present one. If it gets wrecked, I'll put them on another one. I'm entitled to them. You say, yep. hey, yeah, I suppose you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, um, there's there's other P40s in New Zealand too that uh, aren't XR and ZF ones. We've got, as I mentioned, uh, ZKCAG, um, the P40N based at Ardmore with Frank Parker and Liz Needham up in uh, Ardmore with Warbirds, and that's an ex Australian one that was r- rescued from the the jungle and rebuilt here in New Zealand. And I just thought, I just realised what it probably represents. Wasn't CA, wasn't that the code of number 3 Squadron Royal Australian Air Force in the desert? Uh, no, that, what what the uh, what the registration represents is Charles and Garth. Oh, because it was, it was Charles, Charles Darby and Garth Hogan that uh, originally um, built, uh, rebuilt the aircraft, so... And, and owned it. But that's what the CAG is for. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but the actual um, the squadron that it was on had CA codes as well, I think. So we've got uh, you'll be very familiar with NZ three zero zero zero, which is at Wigram. Mm-hmm. Uh, the XP forty F that became a P forty E in the in the Air Force Museum. So that's fantastic to see that aircraft. I love that aircraft. I've seen it. I've seen it there. Yeah, fact, I remember. I remember when they. Uh, I was there when they uh, opened up the engine that came with it. The Ellis. Uh, it kind of come with. Yeah, no, it did come with it. Because um, they were intending to convert it to an E anyway. Yeah. Uh, it arrived with this V seventeen ten thirty nine. I think it was. And I was actually there when they opened it up. Oh right. And they discovered that there was nothing much inside the engine. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you told them it was complete, but it wasn't that complete. It had a. I think it had a. Um, it had the prop shaft coming out the front of the, you know, the, um, which of course was geared down from yep. the engine itself. Inside it was, I don't think it was a crankshaft or any, any conrods or pistons. I think that was it. It was, it was basically empty. <laughs> if you tried to start it up, you'd, you'd, it'd be a long day, a long and frustrating day. Yeah, we we keep cranking this thing, but the nothing nothing moves. <laughs> an, an empty engine. There's uh, there's also uh, a number of P40 projects uh, in New Zealand as well. Some of them are ex-Russian, like uh, Graham Orphan's got one that's just in storage, and uh, John Saunders' one has been re- restored at the moment at uh, uh, at Pioneer Aero. Is his, is his one based on stuff he's brought out of Russia, or is it, or is it Russian adventure just bring forth good parts? Uh, it, it is an ex-Russian um, aircraft. There was you know, a, a crash one. And uh, but it's going to have a lot of New Zealand parts in it too. He's been collecting parts from all over, and it, and he hopes he plans to uh, put it into an RNZF colour scheme too. So that will be fantastic. P forty P40, P40E, and probably in sixteen squadron colours because he's from uh, Marlborough, uh, the home of sixteen squadron. What amazes me is the number of E's that have survived. You know, considering it was a very early mm. early model, the same. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Because a lot of them ended yeah. up in parts of the world where they went. Exposed to such so much danger, like the ones in New Zealand. Although they tended to collide with each other, didn't they? Um, yep. Wipe themselves out. But you know, the Australian ones got sort of knocked around. Um, you know, a lot went to, a lot went to all the 
war fronts, you know, 1942, there were all E's everywhere, right from the Flying Tigers to um, Lucians and, and um, you know, Papua New Guinea and Western Desert, they all had E's there. Yep. And New Zealand, quite, New Zealand never sent them overseas except for those Tonga ones. In fact, right. in fact I just, was I, I, you I just replied to about, um, oh, that's right, I mentioned the one that, uh, was it John Saunders asking about the, the ex, uh, the ex Tonga one. That's yeah, that's right. He 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 sent in a question for this uh, actual interview to find out about because the as I said, the E's uh, those Tonga ones were used on not in Tonga. Well, in fact, they were used on operations in the sense that they went hunting submarines, but <laughs> they, right. they didn't run into the enemy any, any enemy air forces, and they tried to engage with them in this Espirito Santo for quite a few months, but they never. <laughs> Got near them, I don't think. So it was a bit disappointing for people, but they they did try. Now there was there was also a P forty K at Tonga when they took them over. Three one oh eight, two of them was it? Okay. I can't forget the numbers. I think it was, was it the first one or the last one or something. something. Yeah, they okay. they got two K dash ones uh, or they dash fives. I think they were ones, but no dash ones. Yep. But they're yep, rather they're rather different. ugly looking P forty, and they had that rather rough looking tail. So did those two stay at Santo, or did they go with the other P-40Ks up to Guadalcanal? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, I think they were both written off. Uh, oh, no, 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 tell a lie. No, one, one, or they they were both written off. Um, one was written off in Tonga, I think, and the other one was written off in Santo. Okay. Uh, one got an NZ number. It became 3108, and the other one was 3090, I think. Uh, hang on, no, no, tell a lie, tell a lie again, no, no. no tell a lie again, no, 3090 was, in fact, there was a funny K to it, came to New Zealand late too, as I recall, no, the, no, the other one was, yeah, one was written off in Tonga, I think it was drogue towing, they used to use them for drogue towing over there, because they didn't have anything else, and it was right. coming in for landing, and it, I forget what happened, but it crash landed, and it was written off, and the other one became okay. 3108, and that didn't last long, that uh, was written off at Santo, by... Ray, what was his name? Blair, pilot Ray, was it Raymond Blair or something? Okay. And he was quite badly hurt. He took off at Santo and he lined up on the a, a night takeoff. They did, they did a surprising amount of night flying in P-40s. He was taking off at night and he thought he had the a light at the end of the runaway he was aiming up on, but apparently it wasn't. It was actually on a um, fuel tanker parked on the road further oh. back, and he, uh, and he, of course, he gradually drifted off the strip and got. Suddenly ended up in the uh, big, you know, they had big drain, uh, hurricane drains or something they used to call them along the sides of the strip. To you know, they had to yep, camber yep. the strips quite a bit because of their very heavy rainfall, and he just ended up in this ditch and all tangled up in a heap. Oh, right. He didn't, fortunately, didn't reach the fuel tanker. <laughs> he was quite badly knocked around. I think his face hit the um, gun sight or something, and oh, it was quite man. badly knocked around. Yeah, in oh, fact, yeah, John, yeah. I think John Wright, uh, you ever heard of John Wright? The, he was very. Really, Keen aviation historian type person ended up as quite a senior pilot with safe air on the Argosies. Okay, no, it doesn't seem familiar. He told us all about the P-40s at, at Fair Hall. He saw them as a kid, and he said, "Oh, he said some of the magni magnificent personal markings on them, including one he said was a had a huge rooster painted on the side with, with boxing gloves." Oh wow! Nobody's ever seen a picture of it, but keep keep a lookout for that one. Yeah, definitely. And other ones had all sorts of other things. Um, 
you can see there's quite a good picture of 16 Squadron. You can see various things are painted, but you can't forget what the hell they are because that's just a bit fuzzy. It's right. much far away. But remember, 16 Squadron had, had fancy markings too. Yeah, well, I, uh, I've seen a few photos of 16 Squadron aircraft at Fairhall, but I've never seen any names or artwork on them, so that's interesting. Well, look out for that rooster, but I'm sure yeah, if yeah. you spot him, that's, that's who it's worth. Yeah, definitely, I'll, I'll, I'll look out for that. He was only about 10 at the time, but he said he vividly remembered, he was so, was so impressed with this thing. Yeah. <laughs> he said, yeah, went yeah, right up to it. it was, oh, I think his cool. father was quite a senior, um, he's a carpenter, I think, but he, he, he was... A foreman or something at at, uh, at Woodburn at the time they were extending it or improving right. the drainage or something or other. Yeah, yeah, a uh, might have been in works. I mean, uh, yep. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't have a carpenter supervising drainage, would you? <laughs> no, that doesn't make sense. He, he was a, he was he wasn't a, in the air force. He was a civilian contractor of some sort that worked on the aerodromes anyway. Maybe as a plumber. Maybe he was. Who knows? <laughs> I can't, I can't ask John, he passed away some years back. Well, I think we could uh, really just about ready to finish, do you think? Yeah, um, there's just a couple of things that I just want to cover. And one is, um, the uh, just going back to the P-40s that went from Tonga to Santo, uh, the, P, the P-40Es, you mentioned before about there were still a few air raids from long-distance long aircraft. Did, would they have in, done any interceptions or uh, attempted interceptions over Santo? They attempted, but um, often they were at night. Yeah. And as I said, this, uh, people trying to gain interceptions at night based on ground radar plots is really up against it. Yeah. And the aircraft had no special facilities or equipment. Oft, often those old aircraft, they half the lights in them didn't work anyway. In fact, in fact I have a, if you look up Spurdle, he had some very harsh things to say about the ground crew there. He said they were... He, said, he talks about these aircraft being required for night flying. I don't know whether it was for interceptions. It might have been just for night flying full stop. But they were basically trainers. But he found he went to find out why so many of these aircraft, the the, the lighting in them was was up to a poor standard. You know, all the half the bulbs had blown, and there was everything was covered in dust and dirt, and it looks like it hadn't been used for months. Yeah. And he found he reckoned he found the instrument buddy mechanics all working on projects for the Americans, i.e. Oh. i.e. making up trinkets. Oh, using, yes. using all New Zealand government property to turn out all this stuff for, for personal gain. And apparently right. he blew a, hissy, blew a hissy fit at these jokers and blew them up and said they, they should be ashamed of themselves and why aren't they doing what they're paid to do and he gave them a right reaming out apparently and of course they all got boity-toity about this and couldn't see any problem with having a bit of private uh, enterprise on the site. <laughs> and he was, he was absolutely bloody, it sounded like he was bloody just about burst with rage seeing these types okay. churning out stuff for the Americans. Wow. It, did, it did go on, that sort of thing. Yeah, it did. It Possibly did. not as badly as some people think, but I, I know it did go on. Yeah. I know my father was practicing on that. But, uh, I've, I've got his kit. He was making stuff right. for the Americans. Yep. It was in his own, to be fair, it was in his own time. Even yep. if he was desecrating and scrapping stuff Official issue brass buttons, uniform buttons to do it, and, and perspex <laughs> stolen from crash crashed aircraft. Yeah, that was uh, that was a big commodity, wasn't it? If if an aircraft crashed, everybody was out there trying to get the perspex. To make, it wasn't to get, yeah, it was so they could sell it to the Americans because they were suckers mm. for that sort of thing, and they didn't mind what they paid. Yeah, absolutely. And New Zealanders yeah. have been. Apparently, it's high school. A lot of people learned this carving perspex, whatever it was. 
Ah. That's right. That's that's why they were doing it. It wasn't. It was just so happened that they that it was a craft seen as a craft in schools, and they started started these things, and some people took it up. Oh, right. I didn't know. Oh, that. did I? Until the I don't. Know, I think my father must have, because he was quite. He he made beautiful little Spitfire, and they made little little Air Force. He made a set of wings and with an NZ in the middle, and he had this little tiny Spitfire on a wee stand. You know, it was all only about the Spitfire was only about inch and a half long or something. You can see it was a Spitfire. Yeah. And I don't know what else he made, but we've actually got his kit, and he's got all these butchered bu- buttons that he's cutting the NZs out of, and it's all sort of half-finished projects, it seems. Right, right. I don't know if he actually made any money on it. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but there were some of these, these instrument fitters in the buddy, base depot workshops were buddy working on it, according, according to, if you can find his, uh, what's, it's called the Blue Arena, isn't it? Um, that's the one, yes. That's a look up about um, um, those going up to Espirito Santo and trying to sort out these bloody instrument mechanics and base workshops, base depot workshops, when they were trying to get these P40s suitable for night flying. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'll, I'll have to look that up because I, I, I read the book years ago. Years yeah, it's and years quite ago, a ripping yarn. He's, he's obviously a fairly um, rumbumptious character. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. He's uh, could get annoyed. Yeah. Interesting guy. Um, so just to just to finish up, uh, David, there, there were some questions that were sent in by people. We've answered a few of them already, um, but uh, we were just talking about um, Spurdle. Uh, interesting. I never know what to call him because he was Robert Spurdle, but uh, so some people call him Bob Spurdle. But uh, Spud was another one. But you wouldn't call it yeah, would you? And no, and then others called him Peter. He was known as Peter Spurdle, and then uh, uh, when I met him that time, he said the family called him David, which I think was his middle name. I hope, so, I hope you're not going to ask me to sort that lot out. No, <laughs> yeah, no. I, I think he's crazy that for himself. <laughs> yes, uh, exactly, and I, I'm just uh, I, I, I'm just throwing that out there because there are so many variations that people might might not know who I'm talking about. So. It's exceptionally um, complicated. It is, it is indeed. Um, but, complicated. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, um, uh, he, in his book Blue Arena, uh, who was it? Don McLeod asks, uh, in his book, he's, he said that Spurdle believed the RNZF would have been better off, uh, better served if they had Spitfires in the Pacific instead of P40s. And I think he's asking our opinion of that. Um, I'll go first. Uh, I, I think um, the, the Spitfire wouldn't have had the range of the P40. And. Um, I'm not sure that it would have been as rugged uh, in some of the operations that they were doing as well. So, well, you weren't reading that thing uh, I wrote the other day, are you? Uh, well, no, uh, that was my actual genuine. Yeah, yeah, okay, um, yeah, I, I thoughts, thought it was pretty well identical anyway. If you read my, yeah, yeah, I, I did read, I did read that, but it was the same thoughts that I had. Coincided with your general opinion. And, and also, you you made a really good point about um, we went off know, at we, it anyway. Exactly, we went off at it anyway, and if we were, we had to, we had to beg, we had to we, we had to beg to get into the war. And the only way whether anybody would give us anything at that stage, well, Britain said, well, we can we can't send much, and it might be six months away, or never. And then we yeah. said, well, if you're prepared to go on the offensive with us, we'll supply you the aircraft, but you must, um, you know, we'll treat you as one of our squadrons, more or less, and um, we'll expect you to follow. You'll be under our direct command. Is it a deal? Yeah. And that's, well, that, and that's and that's so when they signed when they signed up for land lease, it wasn't for supply of aircraft. It was it was for supply of units to operate these yes. aircraft under the Americans in the Ford area, and it just and they, and they would provide the aircraft. That's that's what it really meant. 
a lot of people don't get that. Well, that, that was the conditions anyway. New Zealand got them. I mean, the deal with China would be considerably different to that, I think. They probably said right. to them, well, we'll supply with aircraft to the maximum of our ability, depending on the situation all around the world, uh, and we'll just do the best we can. And what sort of aircraft do you think you need? And they'd probably right. have a better idea of what the Chinese needed, probably more better than the Chinese did, because... Um, and they would assess the situation. They say, "Well, we can't know you supplying these because you haven't got any decent airfields." You know, yeah. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll help you build more better airfields, and then we'll decide. Uh, and then we'll f decide how you might be able to help us. The Americans say, "We can help you, but only if you can help us." You know, which is exactly. fair enough. Yeah. I mean, just with the the question of Spitfires versus P40s, uh, uh, the Spitfire was a defensive fighter, and the P40 was. Much more of an offensive fighter. So, well, it just had to um, have the yeah characteristics that it would make a better offensive one. It was probably yeah. probably tougher, but I, I think the aerodynamically the Spitfire was tough. It just um, yeah, there were the, the Spitfire was, was was restricted to a the, the fuel tanks that could squeeze into the floor of the cockpit basically, and that was that was what it was designed as. And they later added tanks underneath it. But they, um, yeah. it was always a bit short on on range. Uh, when you look to um, the Australians, operated both types. They did, and 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 I think that uh, I'm no expert in the Royal Australian Air Force, but I think that they considered the P40 to have been a much more successful aircraft in in that theatre of war. So well, they uh, well, they, they realised the Spitfire was probably a better fighter at altitudes, simply because it had a. Um, a two-speed engine, whereas the, the Kitty Hawk just had one a single-speed supercharger, and that was it, which meant it right. was running out of puff, and the Spitfire right. was still delivering good power. That was the, and of course they were using them against high-altitude aircraft in, in the Northern Territory, against you know right. against the Japanese coming in from East Timor you know, with their um, yes. army and navy. Well, mostly army aircraft were against them actually. Was oh no, army? Uh, I think they used army and navy aircraft actually uh, from East Timor. But that was their main use, was, was those high-altitude interceptions, which the Kitty Hawk would have trouble doing, Yeah. simply because of its, its engine limitations. Right, right. So, I mean, both both had their merits, um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a, a moot argument, really. Well, well, you can argue which was, uh, which, you know, if, you, if, if, if uh, all these aircraft were equally available, you would pick this one for the job, and you can say that's fair enough, but what if you're not, what if that one's not possible? Yeah. Well, you've got to get take the next best. Well, in fact, the only one we were offered was the P40, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They said, well, you know, standard, for standard fighters, P40, you know, that's all we've got. Or P39s. <laughs> well, I think we we probably came off much better there, because the P39, I don't think, is anywhere near as good as the P40. Well, it had some unique things about it, didn't it? I mean, although the engine was in the back, it was, I think the nose wheel would have presented the biggest problem. It was... Yeah. Well, it was also an advantage in some cases if you had good fields, but if you had bad fields, the uh, aircraft with nose wheels always have more collapses. The tail right. wheel is tougher, but um, but on a good airfield, it's much better to have a tricycle undercarriage, right. which is why so many American aircraft came out late in the war. Well, even early in the war with tricycle, they said it's so much better and easier in many ways. You know, once people try the nose wheel. Uh, aircraft like the Bostons and the, um, the Mitchells, the uh, Liberators, although the Liberator had a bit quirky. 
and uh, yeah, the P39. They said it's just so much, you've got so much better view on takeoff. Yeah, you know, on the landing, it's much the same. Uh, but the, the, the P39 was an odd, odd sort of an aircraft. Yeah, it was. Um, we'll go on to the next question. Um, this one I can't say anything about because I don't know anything about it, but it's coming from Travis Thompson, and he says, is it possible uh, to ask about the RNZ FP40s being used to test Hayes camo used on Ricky Lightnings for the US Army Air Force? Um, and he says an article on F on the F5 Lightning camouflage briefly mentioned it. I've never heard of that. I've never heard of it either, and I, I do know what Hayes camouflage was. It, I don't. It never seemed to catch on in a big way, but I cannot imagine why the RNZF would would be interested in that. Um, yeah, it's it, it, it's kind of so out of left field. Uh, it, yeah. it just doesn't seem credible to me. I mean, some no. sometimes odd things do turn up in articles, and uh, when you actually look into it, you think, well, it's weird. <laughs> I can think of yeah. no reason to explain that, and unless somebody can comes up with something to make me believe it, I just I would just disregard it, quite frankly. Yeah, so if anyone out there has any information on that, send it in, but well, I'd be um, surprised to hear anything. Yeah, Even the Americans yeah. didn't seem convinced, so why why would we be interested? Yeah. I mean, in fact mostly we had we had the Americans control to a certain extent the markings on aircraft, like um, we tried to keep them in making tried to make them look like New Zealand aircraft, but they I mean they weren't particularly interested in that, but as long as they we didn't put red red on it Right. Anywhere that could be mistaken for their Japanese uh, opponents. Right. Yep. Um, I can't understand why we had no reconnaissance aircraft. You know, that was particularly that Hayes thing was particularly for high altitude photographic reconnaissance aircraft right. or aircraft, any aircraft at high altitude, I suppose. But the Americans didn't seem convinced by it. They messed around with it a bit. But and I've seen them. I've actually got a book that shows them. P thirty P thirty eights and the and Ascension Island of all places okay. ferried across or something in North Africa and they had this camouflage and they actually mentioned it. I think right. they're, they're quite clearly marked on this Hayes camouflage in the background. It's a bit like the British, you know, with their PRU blue colours and that sort of thing. Right. They they all thought they had the right answers, but um, and they lived or died by them. Yep. But, but as regards New Zealand having aircraft of any sort having it. Absolutely, never heard of it. Okay. And would be highly well, surprised if we had. Yeah. Very highly surprised. <laughs> That's all I would say. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, the last question is coming from Brenton Emmett, and he uh, he thinks that the RNZF used different tactics from the, uh, the US fighter squadrons, and he wondered if you had any comments on that. Well, as far as I can make out, we used... British tactics, this is the fighter tactics talking about, um, because somebody, yep. everything we, all our literature and stuff on it, technical, you know, air publications came from Britain and we had heaps of people there, so we just thought they were the bee's knees. We went by what they said, and when the, we were put under the Americans in the war, we, they said, well, look, if you're going to fly with us, you'll just have to learn our stuff. They didn't, weren't as rude to say, because we're not going to, we're not going to um, let you f use your own ones. They said, look, if you're going to work together, Adopt our tactics, our types of aircraft, our strategies, our procedures, everything. Yep. And that's that. And I mean, we you know we couldn't change our accents. They always thought we sounded funny on the radio, <laughs> um, and couldn't understand well, the swearing. <laughs> but uh, 
we we had to work in with them, and I, I don't know. I, as I said, I think the the only tactics I think was that we we did as we were told, because a lot of American yeah. fighter pilots did tend to be a bit uh, what's the word um, uh, independent of yeah. high command. Maver- but but, sort but, of but particularly fighter pilots were a bit notorious for that. And they were always after more Japs, shooting down Japs, get those Japs. And uh, when they were told to guard the bombers, they often just said, oh, we'll stick with them until we see some Japs, you know. Right. right. <laughs> and then we'll go chase the buggers and shoot them down, and that'll, that'll save the pilots. But, but, but as you know, the Americans t- demanded they had quite a few layers of protection over all their bombers, particularly their heavy bombers, and, and their Dauntlesses and things, and Avengers, which we had to escort quite often, and B-25s. Although they at low level, but they uh, they had um, their FP40s would actually fly with the liberators, you know, right around them, yep. right over the top of them, and under them. They were basically flying at the same level, and that, then over that they had what was called close. How the hell did they put it? Then above that they had what was called low cover. This was this was actually the like a blanket over the whole thing. There was low cover. And they used to be various types of aircraft depending on their performance. Then there was medium cover, and then there was top cover, which was usually P-38s. And then there was roving, roving cover, top roving cover, which are okay. usually Corsairs and things like that, Hellcats, which were, which were not tied to the bombers. They could go any, they could fly up high and wait to pounce from above. Right. And there was these layers of aircraft that the um, Japanese had were supposed to get through to get at the bombers. And the P-40s were usually put right amongst the bombers and around them. Uh, I think they used to weave, weave above, just above them or just below them, and, and they were just. They said they got to stick with the bombers no matter what. Okay. And of course, one of it, you're probably aware, one of our P-40s was actually hit by the bombs from a P, uh, B-24. Oh yes, that's uh, right. I forget who it was. I think they were killed. They reckon it, they reckon it knocked his whole propeller off the front. Wow. And that was in early February '44, I think, or late '43. Can't remember exactly. Yeah, they reckon they, somebody actually saw this buddy, a bomb, come straight through and knock his nose off, uh, knock his right. propeller off, right. or hit it on the spinner or something. But they were right amongst them, and they just stuck there, and there was there was actually a one or two cases. I think Van, Vanderpump was involved in one, and um, another pilot who was later killed flying an American Corsair. Annie Laurie. Oh, right. They, they got DFs, American DFCs, I think, for... For sticking tightly to a liberator that was uh, that had lost an engine and was he fell out of the formation and was struggling home and uh, the, the, all these zeros were hassling it and these two New Zealand pilots uh, kept chasing them away and the crew, of course, the crew of this thought they were the greatest pilots in the world. <laughs> and, yeah, well, and, I, I and, re- and, from, and from their uh, statements, they they decided to award them these American medals. Well, it makes sense. Uh, I remember seeing uh, a statement written by one of the American Avenger uh, squadron commanders uh, who they operated alongside the New Zealand Avengers. Um, and he said that whenever they went on a uh, uh, on a raid, on a, you know, an operation, they insisted that they had the New Zealand fighter wing flying with them as their escort. And if they, if the New Zealand fighter wing, for any reason, couldn't put aircraft up that day, they'd refuse to fly, um, because they they felt the safest with the New Zealanders as their escort and nobody else. And I thought that was really interesting. Well, that, I think yeah, I think they just the New Zealanders took their duties. 
towards the American commander because he was entrusting them with his bomber crews. Yep. They just took those duties very seriously, I think. And um, yeah, it's, it was just a lack of discipline amongst some American leading fighter pilots, I think, that um, got them a bad name for not sticking with the bombers and skiving off to shoot down jets, which may or may not be threatening the bombers. Right. And the bomber pilots, bomber crews, felt uh, when they saw their own aircraft zooming off somewhere else, when they came under attack, they didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I've been told that, um, and I haven't done the research to, to prove this, but I've been told that the New Zealand fighter wing never lost any bombers that they were escorting. Uh, that's probably true, but then, then the Japanese didn't actually shoot down a huge number of those bombers. A lot, a no. lot were, some were taken down by flak. The, the fighters got yeah, some. Yeah. They, often they, uh, often they, uh, would, you know, one would get winged or something and drop back with a windmilling propeller or something, and they would have a go. They, they took a lot of shooting down those liberators and things. Yes. Japanese, because yeah. they had those slow-firing cannons and light machine guns. They. Um, it took, if they'd had heavier machine guns, it would have been a, might have been a bit of a different story. But they had, and of course they had no armor plate either. The right. Japanese, so they uh, every every time they flew near a B twenty four, they risked getting hosed with fifty caliber shells, which are quite nasty. So um, yeah, the Japanese had quite a lot of trouble shooting down the big American bombers. Right. They could hit them, but they had to bring them down was a yeah, quite a quite a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we won't uh, we won't talk about the uh, individual cases of combat uh, because, as you suggested, that um, there's the most excellent book out there, which people can go and look at. All, which, all the uh, combat reports are in there. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, Chris Rudge's book, uh, Ear to Ear, and you can still buy that book. Um, so I'll I'll put a link into the show notes um, and put some information in there. That's a fantastic book, and it tells you actually and how they fought with them too. You know, um, it doesn't yeah. it doesn't yeah. go much on the tactics particularly, but you can sort of gather it by reading the carefully reading the uh, combat reports. You get a, quite a bit of it, and of course yeah. there have been published reports on it that uh, well published. I I mean by published within the services. In fact, I've also noted that CWK Nichols wrote a very long report with the Americans on fighter tactics. Or fighter bomber tactics, and it was published by the U.S. or the U.S. Command, and he actually gave you know references for it. And I thought, well, what copy of that is? Right. It was specifically on New Zealand, and I think it also p- pertained to the Americans too. But um, he he actually was asked to write it because of his position as the one of the senior fighter commanders, even though he had two squadrons under him. Whereas the Americans, I think, probably had about 20 squadrons of corsairs and you know tough nut bloody marines flying them and right. boards of them. <laughs> yep, yep. But, that, but that's one maybe buried in the American archives, you know, I've, but I've, I've got a New Zealand version of it, but it's, okay. it's only about six pages, it's quite brief, but it's, quite, it's interesting. Okay. But it's specifically on tactics, and Harry saw them at that time, because he was quite an experienced pilot in the European theatre too. Right. Which is why he came out to New Zealand in the first place, I think. Right, right. Um, I, I've got one question that I was going to ask earlier and I forgot about and it's just come back to me. The Central Flying School, uh, you mentioned that the first aircraft went there and... Um, I made uh, a pilot's notes. Yeah, but they actually flew several over, over time. They uh, did. They... So there was five of them. But what, the question I have is, do you know um, 
the the Central Flying Schools aircraft, uh, you see a few photos of them around. They're Oxfords, they're Harvards, they're uh, Tiger Moths. They all had red cows. Because some, of them, some, some, some of them did. Yeah, they, no matter what colour scheme uh, somebody thought was good, often it never got sort of fully carried out. Okay, I, I wondered. I wondered if uh, the P40s ever wore red cows. Or it's it's possible, but I, I'd somehow doubt it because they often only seem to stay there for a, uh, a month or two. Um, they actually oh, somebody wrote one off too. Actually, at the uh, yeah, 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 went, went in the harbour. Yeah, one of them quite a senior harbor. pilot too. I don't know what the hell he did wrong, but um, yes, he ended up yeah making a um, bit of a splash. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> he, but he probably wasn't familiar with it or didn't read the pilot's notes properly before he started. Right. Senior pilots right. often do that. They say, oh, what could be hard about this? Well, <laughs> do you know where the such and such is? Wouldn't have a clue. <laughs> you know, fuel cock or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you, what's the emergency uh, uh, lowering of the undercarriage? What, how does that work? There's an emergency lowering system for the undercarriage? I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to know your aircraft, but they, they sometimes take these things a bit lightly at times. Yep. They only realise that when it, you know, things go wrong. Mm. Hey. Well, I think we've covered a, a hell of a lot there, David. And um, so, no, I really appreciate that. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting to hear a lot of the stuff that uh, you don't normally hear about the P-40s. And, um, and uh, for, for people out there... Uh, who want to know more about the RNZ FP40s? Just just to close, um, uh, there are books we mentioned uh, Air to Air and by Chris Rudge, and uh, I think a really good uh, couple of books. Uh, uh, I know that uh, you'd you'd agree to uh, Keith Mulligan's book, Kitty Hawks and Coconuts. Oh, yeah. that's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. And, yeah, and uh, so I had a bit to do with that one actually. Ah, right. Okay, I, I don't know. Some, uh, we might have put some appendices in the back or something. Ah oh, right, and a, and another one that gives a good uh, uh, overview of what happened at the OTU is uh, Brian Cox's excellent book uh, "Too Young to Die," um, which uh, uh, you know I'd highly recommend that book as well. Oh, wow. Okay, well I suppose you better call it a night. Yeah. Okay then. Sign off. Thank you very much, Dave. Okay, and I'm sure there's more to come, but yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely speak again. <laughs> okay, I'll just turn you okay. off now. You ready? That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.